Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Eat less sugar. Eat more fiber. Eat out of the garden more. So, have you set your New Year's resolutions yet? We'll talk with the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society about some good gardening habits to start in 2022. The UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden Superintendent Emeritus Warren Roberts, he's ushering in the new year with a plant that just might be putting on a show right now with its colorful berries or reddish leaves in your yard. It's the Heavenly Bamboo, also known as Nandina Domestica, and it's our plant of the week. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's episode 159 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. Brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in way over 30 minutes. Happy New Year! Let's go! Well, we're at that time of year when a lot of us make resolutions. And that includes gardeners as well. What plans do you have for your garden or your gardening habits in 2022? We are talking with Andrew Bunting. He is the Vice President of Public Gardens and Landscapes at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, an internationally recognized organization that was uh, founded a long, long time ago. It's also the producer of the world-famous Philadelphia Flower Show, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. And Andrew, uh, thanks for joining us here on the Garden Basics podcast. You are part of an organization that is going to be celebrating a rather big milestone in a few years. Yeah, we're only a handful of years away from our 200th anniversary. So I noticed that at the uh, Pennsylvania Horticultural Society website, and by the way, that is an excellent and a very beautiful website as well, phsonline.org. You have a lot of great information for the gardeners of, I guess, is it for the Philadelphia area or is it for Pennsylvania in general? Because Pennsylvania is is a rather uh, complicated state, I think, when it comes to gardening, because there's something like, what, three USDA zones in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I would say that a lot of our garden information is probably more for gardeners of, I would actually call it the, the mid-Atlantic region. So, you know, from, say, Washington, D.C. to, you know, New York and, you know, all of New Jersey and, De- and Delaware probably to like the middle of Pennsylvania. Once you, once you get into the Western parts of Pennsylvania, like you said, it's, uh, you know, it can be two to three zones colder than it is in the Philadelphia area. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the pride and joy of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. And that's the Philadelphia flower show, which has to be the premier garden event in the United States of America. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, uh, the big, well, normally it's indoors, but uh, with COVID, uh, it was out of doors last year for the first time ever in its history. But when it's indoors, it's the largest indoor flower show in the world. It's uh, definitely, like you said, the biggest kind of horticultural spectacle in the United States. It's been running also since 
almost the beginning of the society. So the society started 1827. The first flower show was in 1829, and it's been running more or less, you know, every year since then. And uh, so last year it started towards the end of May. This year it's also going to be out of doors again. And uh, it's held in a big park in South Philadelphia called uh, FDR Park. And th- in 2022, it'll run from June 11th to June 19th. Which is a bit of change uh, from the dates of, of previous Philadelphia flower shows, which were held uh, what somewhere between winter and spring. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it typically starts right towards the end of February and then continues to, you know, the first nine or 10 days of March. And, and, you know, the plan is, or the hope is, you know, once indoor activities become safer that, you know, hopefully it will, you know, someday once again can return to indoor show as well. So for the people displaying plants at the Philadelphia Flower Show, do they find this to be an easier adaptation for a June show than doing a show in March? Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to, to both. I would say doing it in, in May or May like we did last year in June, like we'll do this year, is the plants, many of the plants that are on display and flowering would already be flowering. So, you know, for example, you could go into a, a nursery and get a, a large flowering hydrangea and bring it to the show and, and have it be on display. Now, if you want a hydrangea, in flower for the winter show, then you have to force it in a greenhouse into flower. So the, the in, indoor show does have a lot of forced plants. It still has, you know, 30 feet cherry trees that somebody has forced, you know, laying down on its side in a, in a greenhouse. Uh, but we also, the indoor flower show takes more advantage of uh, tropical plants as well as uh, cut flowers. And then the outdoor, outdoor show, we still do uh, floral exhibits, but they're perhaps a little hot, harder to execute because it, you know, the weather can be fairly warm in in uh, middle of June. It could be downright humid. Yeah, humid can be hot, can be windy, and it might rain. It might rain. Yeah. yeah, we we fingers crossed that the rain holds off, or or if it comes, it's uh, you know, just a a nice little shower. Yeah, it's not that big a deal, really. All in all. But right. uh, the Philadelphia Flower <laughs> Show is, is always a, an attraction. It, it attracts people from around the world. Yes. And we, you know, we have, you know, a strong following in the area. You know, since it's been going for so long, there's it's really a, a, a multi-generational event. So you'll see, uh, you know, grandparents with their kids, with their, grand, with their grandchildren who come in uh, from the train, either, you know, from the suburbs or, you know, lots of people come down from, you know, either up from Washington, D.C. or down from New York or Boston to come to the show. June 11th through the 19th at FDR Park in Philadelphia. More information about the Philadelphia Flower Show can be found at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society website, phsonline.org. All right. Now, one of the things uh, we wanted to talk about now that we're in this reflective mood, wondering about what we're going to do differently in 2022, the brains over there at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society came up with some uh, garden trends for 2022 that are are ideal for gardeners of all interests and and experience levels to incorporate into their own gardens. So let's talk about some of those. 
One of my favorite uh, things to do is to promote the Good Bug Hotel, which is to bring in pollinator uh, <laughs> yeah. plants and, and uh, natives. I would say natives first and then uh, pollinator plants, which, you know, could be natives. They, they could also be exotic plants, have both been trending for some time. I would say the native plant movement has been in full swing for, I would say, at least two decades. And I would say there's no sign of that waning uh, whatsoever. And then kind of a, a nuanced aspect to that is, you know, perhaps planting native gardens that have uh, plants that are great for attracting pollinators, whether they be things like Kind of the classic is the butterfly milkweed, Asclepius tuberosa, or any of the mountain mints. The genus is Pycnanthemum. Uh, cone flowers are great for uh, monarchs and swallowtail butterflies. You know, almost anything that's in the daisy family, whether it's a, a black-eyed Susan or a Helianthus or chest daisies, those are all good plants for general generally for uh, pollinators. So a lot of people are po planting pollinator strips. They might plant actually down the, you know, the row in between the vegetables in a vegetable garden. They may plant a, a strip of, of permanent pollinators or around the edge of the vegetable garden so that they can ensure that they have a good host of pollinators to pollinate the vegetables in their vegetable garden or you're also seeing a lot of uh, ornamental gardens that are uh, pollinator heavy. Exactly. And I imagine uh, the bee-friendly plants as well probably attract all sorts of native bees. Yes. Yeah. So I used to live in Illinois, and I think we had over uh, 300 native bees just in Illinois. So you know, most people know the honeybee or the bumblebee, but there's uh, many, many, many native uh, bees as well in, in all states throughout the United States. So, and there's also, you know, little pollinating wasps that are non-stinging wasps and other pollinating insects. So, you know, it's good to uh, support those, you know, as the best you can with uh, introducing plants that are, you know, known to be, you know, a great attractor of a myriad of pollinators. And beneficial insects as well, which can cut down your use of pesticides. Yeah, that's right. You know, we advocate for the use of as, as little chemicals in the garden as possible. So really, you know, no fungus or no synthetic fungicides, herbicides or insecticides. So once you eliminate those, then you create, you know, a really healthy environment for one for your plants to grow strong and then also you know, if you're if you're spraying for the bad bad pests, you're going to kill the good ones as well. Limiting the amount of uh, chemical fertilizers in the garden will ensure that you have uh, all the beneficial insects as well, including the beneficial soil microbes as well. There's as much of a network of activity in the soil, mycorrhizae that are helping with different plants and the the native soils and helping with uh, to facilitate essentially the exchange of uh, nutrients. And to make room for all of this, well, you, you might need to tear up a little bit of lawn to put in uh, some, some more plants. And ripping out lawn, you know, here in California, local governments are paying people to rip out their lawn and put in 
a more drought tolerant garden. Uh, I don't think right. they're doing they're right. not doing that back there, are they? No, not so much. Not not for drought reasons. I mean, I know that you know a good portion of California is uh, a Mediterranean climate and therefore doesn't rain much during uh, the summer months. So, you know, irrigating uh, a lawn, especially in the summer in California, is not very water-wise at all. So what one reason for eliminating lawn would be to eliminate the amount of kind of inputs you need, watering being one of them. The other is that it needs to be mowed so, you know, mowing requires a certain amount of uh, gas, obviously, and, and fossil fuels to do so. So every homeowner could even reduce their lawn by, let's just say, 25 square feet, which is only five feet by five feet. And it was done across the entire United States. You can imagine uh, how much less water would need to go into that collective amount of lawn and how much less a fuel to maintain the, the the mowing and then you could also then take those you know that square footage and turn it into whatever a vegetable garden or a pollinator garden or a flower garden or any any kind of garden would be better than just having you know pure pure lawn i mean every i have a lawn in my home and i enjoy it for you know, a variety of reasons, recreation and uh, otherwise. So it's not as though we're suggesting the complete elimination of the great American lawn, but just a little reduction here, here and there would be really be a great way to, for us in a small way to do our part to make for a better overall environment. Exactly. Your children and your dogs do not need 5,000 square feet of turf. But good luck convincing people of that. That's that's the hard part. Yeah, I, like my, my neighbor, uh, I live in south of Philadelphia, and my neighbor next to me, she took just a back corner of her yard that she never did anything back there except for mowed it. And it's probably, I would say it's 20 by 20, so it's 400 square feet. And she just didn't mow it. It just turned essentially into like a little meadow. And it was amazing just to see like what came up and flowered. And I'm sure it was a great habitat for, you know, birds and uh, insects and so forth. So even if you didn't turn it into garden, you can just let it go kind of naturalistic. Just let it let it grow. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots, it's the original award-winning fabric planter. It's sold worldwide, and Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. Smart Pots come in a wide array of sizes and colors. If a frost or freeze is in the forecast, moving your frost tender plants that are in the Smart Pots that have handles make them easier to move closer to the house for added warmth, or you could even move them inside for the winter. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful fabric containers. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts when you buy Smart Pots at Amazon. If you want to see them before you buy, Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. 
Let's get back to our discussion of New Year's resolutions for gardeners from Andrew Bunting of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. For new gardeners, the magnetism of headed, heading towards the garden center cannot be denied. Yes, you will do that. But the thing is, your neighbors may have some interesting plants that they have too many of. I know I have that disease where if I plant uh, tomatoes, well, I'm going to plant three or four of the same tomato seeds just to make sure that one of them comes up. Well, of course, all three or four come up. So that means I've got plants out front that I'm trying to give away in April. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, back there are, are in the same boat as well. And they, they probably have some sort of uh, plant swaps or some sort of uh, way yep. to exchange plants with each other. Yeah, so plant swaps have become really popular. I think a lot of it's been kind of energized or catalyzed by uh, house plants, which are also uh, continue to be really popular. And that's an easy way for people to exchange house plants, you know, just a little bit of a spider plant or a little cutting from a jade plant or a leaf from an African violet can be shared with somebody else and then they're all relatively easy to propagate. I know people in my neighborhood, they might have, say, a hosta that's gotten too big and they'll divide it into like 10 little hostas and maybe not even pot them up, just to put them on a little bit of tarp at the end of their driveway and then through kind of social media exchanges like, you know, Facebook or Instagram or we have, and maybe you have the same in California, we have this platform called Nextdoor. Mm-hmm. So the town I live in is Swarthmore. So it's Nextdoor Swarthmore. You go on there and say, I've got 10 free hostas, first come, first serve. Give your address. And it's a great way to really share, you know, plants that you may have extra of. You might have grown like a dozen extra seedlings of tomatoes, or you might have some extra potting soil. You know, they also use the exchanges for things like nursery pots and things, you know, other gardening items that people have extras of. We operate two pop-up gardens, which have also kind of a a food and beverage component, but they're also fairly large gardens where we, and they're in the city. So we do these plant swaps where everybody's invited to come. And if you bring like five little house plants, then you, essentially the rules are whatever you bring, you get that much in, uh, you know, you get to swap or trade for it. So you bring five whatever, and then you can take five of whatever from what everybody else has brought. I've seen it as a great gateway for somebody who's never gardened before and maybe wants to uh, get some new house plants or get some new uh, perennials for uh, their garden or, or, or vegetable starts or a little bit of potting soil. So it's uh, free. You know, it's just based on kind of the exchange and bartering system. But, you know, some of them have become quite large as well. And that would include seeds as well. How many people that use an entire seed seed packet? Exactly. Think of, you know, like every time you, you know, plant carrots or something, you often have like half of the packet left. So you might as well exchange those. I saw actually at the flower show, you know how um, lots of communities have these, these free libraries where it's like essentially like like a, a little um, box on a post and they put ex- extra books in there that they're finished with and anybody in the community can come and take a uh, take free books. Uh, this exhibit had 
for the same idea, but it was for steeds. So mm. it'd be great if like in different communities, if there was kind of a comparable idea of like the, this little free library, but for free garden seeds where, you know, maybe there's this one place in the town where everybody puts all their free seeds and it's kind of a first come first serve basis that would help uh, disseminate all this uh, extra, extra garden seed. I like that idea. That's that's a, a great plan, and I hope more and more people take advantage of that and maybe uh, attending a plant swap or even setting up your own uh, with others in your neighborhood uh, is the way to go, and I think that's a good New Year's resolution for gardeners in 2022. <laughs> One thing I am fond of saying to new gardeners is that the healthiest food you can eat is the food that you grow yourself, and it's uh, with new techniques around now, it's getting easier to have a complete fruit orchard in your backyard when you practice size control. Is that trend taking on, uh, taking off back east there? Yes. Yes. In fact, in Philadelphia, there's a nonprofit called uh, uh, the Philadelphia Orchard Project. And what they advocate is, you know, that you can actually grow fruit trees in a relatively small amount of land. It might just be a small side yard where through either cultivar selection, maybe getting cultivars that are more diminutive in size or through pruning, maybe training to a fence or a spalier. You can be fairly productive in a, in a small amount of space. And so there's been a real resurgence in all, all types of fruits. Uh, you know, your tr- traditional fruits, pears and peaches and apples, but also starting to see, uh, maybe some of your non-traditional plants like for a long time because our winters were colder like figs did not do well here but now uh, figs are are fairly hardy especially if you grow them up uh, next to the southern southern facing side of uh, a building or a house Uh, at home i grow um, asian persimmons so our native persimmon uh, diospyros uh, virginiana is kind of the size of like uh, maybe like a mar- you know a large marshmallow. Uh, but when you eat it, unless it's been frosted, it really makes your mouth pucker. Mm-hmm. But the Asian persimmons, Diospyrus khaki, are much bigger. And once they're, they're, they've been frosted a couple times and they're soft, you can eat them right off, off of the tree. And they have like a real sweet kind of pulp, pulpy uh, aspect to them. Uh, and there's many cultivars like the one I have, Sajo, S-A-I-J-O, has kind of an egg-shaped fruit. But then there's one called Great Wall that's kind of squat, like, almost looks like a little uh, pumpkin. And they're, they're orange, so they're really pretty as well. So you're, you're starting to see a lot of people also experimenting with uh, different types of uh, uh, fruits in the garden. Another trend for 2022 that uh, the people at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society are encouraging, and and I'm on this bandwagon, too, is have a cut flower garden. You know, cut flowers have really, you know, everybody loves cut flowers. There's there's what has sprung up is this uh, kind of boutique cut flower industry. So there's lots of people growing Plants that have been around a long, a long time, you know, a lot of people might consider them kind of old-fashioned flowers, but they're they're growing lots of varieties and making them, you know, a lot of them are be, be actually being sold 
through farmers markets. I think that's where, one place where there's been this amazing uh, revival of cut flowers is is through farmers market, like the farmers market I have in my town. You know, there's at least one or two purveyors of of great uh, cut flowers, and they often, you know, you can either buy them individually or oftentimes uh, in a nice little bouquet. So, you know, some of the flower types that are have become really popular are dahlias. Dahlias again are a plant that does quite well in the Midwest, does relatively well on the East Coast. I would think, and you know, especially in Northern California, I would think it would do fairly well. And they come from, you know, some are like huge, like almost like 12 inches across, and then others are much more diminutive, and they come in almost every color except for uh, blue. Uh, you know, there's pinks and reds and magentas and yellows and whites and, you know, really all, all, all uh, sizes as well. And then, you know, zinnias, you know, zinnias was, was kind of one of the flowers my grandmother had in her, her garden in Nebraska. And that, that's also had a, an amazing, uh, renaissance, uh, both, you know, in the garden, but especially as, as a cut flower. So some of these old fashioned flowers are really making a significant comeback in the, in this, what is really, uh, you know, an exploding boutique industry. Oh, I love zinnias as a cut flower. They last a long time indoors. And uh, the the problem is at nurseries, they don't carry a very broad selection of zinnias. In fact, most of them are more like bedding zinnias. But if you want some with some vibrant color or vibrant looking flowers that get a little bit of size to them, you just might have to plant from seed and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that with zinnias, uh, right, to get the most variety, probably just grow seeds yourself. Uh, dahlias actually come as a, a tuber, kind of a, a fleshy root. And there are some specialty companies in the, the U.S. Actually, one of my, not, not for dahlias, but just for unusual annuals in, in general, uh, many of which could be used for cut flowers. California has one of my most favorite uh, nurseries Annie's Annuals. Yes, which indeed. Is in, um, it, I think it's, it's in Richmond. Richmond, but you know, kind of the Oak, Oakland area. Uh, and their mail order, like we, we buy a lot of stuff from Annie's Annuals. Ah, okay. Well, that's good news. The, uh, and, and zinnias are an easy plant to grow and they too will attract, uh, the pollinators and beneficial insects as sure. well. Yeah. Butterflies yeah. like zinnias for sure. Yeah. So there's a great, uh, collection of, uh, triple duty, uh, flowers you can plant in your garden that <laughs> not only uh, are good for uh, cutting, but also as a pollinator to attract pollinators, to attract uh, beneficial insects. So uh, yeah, consider planting a cut flower garden in 2022. Well, that's quite the list for people to ponder. We'll have this posted at the Garden Basics uh, newsletter uh, that accompanies uh, the podcast. And uh, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, again, their website, phsonline.org. And you can find out more information about the upcoming Philadelphia Flower Show to be held outdoors at FDR Park in Philadelphia, June 11th through the 19th. And uh, that seems like almost too short of a time. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, it, it takes a lot of effort to uh, put together the flower show. So, you know, it, it's a matter of keeping the, the plants going for uh, 10 days or so, which, you know, with the weather, I think that's a challenge. But our, our flower show is typically nine to 10 days. So that's, mm. that's kind of in line with what, what we would typically do. All right. Yes. What people don't realize about about a lot of the major flower shows is that when the door is closed to the public at 5 p.m. or whenever, there's a whole other shift that comes on duty to clean stuff up. Oh, yeah. 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 That's right. You know, we uh, groom and water the plants into the wee hours of the following morning and have to have everything look, you know, almost perfect, you know, every day when we open the doors. Exactly. Andrew Bunting is with the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. He is their vice president of public gardens and landscapes. And again, uh, more information online at phsonline.org. Andrew, thanks for uh, helping us get off to 2022 to a good gardening start. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. If you haven't shopped at your favorite independently owned nursery lately, you know something you're missing out. Now arriving at California, Arizona, and Texas nurseries are Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites of great tasting, healthy fruit and nut varieties. They're already potted up and ready to be planted. We're talking about almonds, blackberries, blueberries, boysenberries, figs, grapes, hops, kiwi, mulberries, olives, pomegranates, and a lot more. For you gardeners in the Pacific Northwest, Mountain, and Southern states, look for Dave Wilson's Farmer's Market Favorites in January and February. You want more? Well, by the second week in January, you're going to find your favorite Dave Wilson bare root deciduous fruit trees in stock, including my favorite, the Plum Apricot Cross, the Pluot. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great-tasting fruit and nut varieties of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you're going to find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. Have you taken a look at the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter yet? There's one that accompanies every episode of the Garden Basics podcast. It's a deeper dive into what was discussed on the podcast, along with more great gardening information. And the newsletter for this episode, episode 159, expands upon one of the suggested New Year's resolutions from Andrew Bunting of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. And it's one you didn't hear yet, because it's going to be a special extra podcast in this week's Garden Basic newsletter. Andrew Bunting talked about the rising popularity back east of gravel gardening. You'll hear his thoughts about it, followed by a discussion between me and Debbie Flower about its appropriateness for hot climates, along with perhaps some of the drawbacks of growing plants and rocks. It's a gravel garden podcast only available in the Garden Basics newsletter, and it's out now. You can find a link to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter in the podcast show notes or at FarmerFred.com or by going to Substack.com slash Garden Basics. Think of it as your garden resource that goes beyond the basics. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, and it's free. So please subscribe, share it with your gardening friends and family. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter, free. And thank you for listening.
We always like to talk with Warren Roberts. He's the superintendent emeritus of the University of California Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. He gives us a plant of the week to enjoy. And uh, Warren, in my estimation, your plant choice this week is is downright heavenly. Oh, how nice of you to say. Well, the common name for this plant, one of the common names is heavenly bamboo or sacred bamboo is sometimes called. It's not a bamboo, though, although it has a kind of a bamboo-like way of growth. Not so much in the invasiveness, but just the, the supple stems and featheriness of it. We're talking about Mandina domestica. It's related to the a barberry family, which would be like old Oregon grape and others. But it's the genus Nandina has just one species, and it is native from the Himalayas over to Japan. I'm trying to think of why it would be called heavenly bamboo, mainly because it flowers and has beautiful uh, fruit, berries, which bamboo, of course, doesn't. Bamboo is a grass, whereas this is not. Oh, another reason might be it comes from the celestial kingdom, which was one of the common names for China mm. back in the Renaissance. In fact, one of the mm, somewhat pejorative names for people from that area are celestials. I don't know if you've heard that. Well, not something to use, really. But it refers then to the, the celestial kingdom, which is what we know today as China. Traditionally, it is used in China, planted near doorways, as a way of saying welcome. And this tradition is, has continued, especially in the Western United States. And sometimes people don't really know why, but it seems to be a tradition to use Nandina near a doorway. One thing, it doesn't take up too much horizontal room so that there's, you know, there's room, usually room for it near a door. Now, the other thing is that it uh, it looks nice. It looks nice all year. It's an evergreen plant. And so it has a pleasant, beautiful appearance, I would say, all year, really. The leaves are are interesting, and they look what look like uh, many, many leaves on the plant are actually one leaf, that is bipinnate or tripinnate, which meaning kind of that the and leaves are then called leaflets. Uh, plants bloom in spring, and then over time the the berries we can call them berries, I think, mature and turn red, and then they are uh, seasonal. That they that they look very nice and bright and fresh uh, at this time of year. The berries will hang on though for a long time and eventually turn brown. Not ugly, but, but not attractive particularly. And one of the issues of this plant is that in areas that have summer rains, it can become a weed. It has become a weed in the eastern United States. I think that the good responsible management of heavenly bamboo is as soon as the berries start to lose their luster, prune them off. The, the clusters are easily removed and then uh, dispose of them. So you can have the, these beautiful plants without the, so much danger of them becoming weedy. You mentioned that it's a good plant for the front door, and one of the reasons for that is it, it can grow in either sun or shade. It can grow in either sun or shade. And my, my parents had a place in Palm Springs, which is undeniably desert, and Nandina did perfectly well there as long as it grew out of direct sun per- perfectly well. So it is a pretty adaptable plant. It grows some areas that receive a lot of cold. It says with sun protection, 
is up to zone three, my goodness. Mm. So <laughs> that gets pretty bold. In really cold climates, the leaves will often drop off. And in many areas, they, they, they stay green all year. Or some varieties, the leaflets will turn red, even a bright red, during the cool weather and then turn green again when the weather warms up. How is that possible? I don't know. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it seems to me okay. And if you, the, the time to choose your Nandinas would be this time of year because the leaf color uh, shows up. And if you want the red leaves, which is very nice, uh, they would show up in the nurseries as well. There are different color berry forms. There's one that has ivory-colored berries, which is a nice contrast. I think it's one of the toughest <laughs> uh, landscape shrubs. And in fact, it's so easy to grow and so beautiful. It's used a lot. And don't we all know people that don't like something simply because it's common? It doesn't make much sense, but there we are. There are mandinas that will <clears throat> grow spread underground, uh, kind of like a bamboo, really. And then there are some which produce very few flowers or fruit, but they're still pretty. In Japan, there are varieties that have been selected that only get about four inches tall, <laughs> and the leaves are like little threads. And these are for, of course, um, specialty collectors. But the, the, within the genus, you have um, selected forms from all the way from, say, three inches up to 12 feet. The common form will get, get fairly, can get fairly tall. And the best way to prune an andina is if it starts getting out of hand, is prune off the whole stem all the way down to ground level. There's almost nothing sadder than andinas that are pruned to be upside down pear shape. Uh, it looks, since the plant is so graceful, to reduce it to this kind of stiffness is, seems criminal. But thank goodness there's a group of people up in the Seattle area called Plant Amnesty helps people think other, otherwise in, in regard to some really bad pruning practices. Yes, I've discovered that with Nandina, it doesn't spread, but it will grow. I have cut several back down to the ground level and covered it with mulch, and they pop up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're irrepressible, aren't they? Yes, irrepressible. That's a good term for it. They're trying to make friends with my blueberries. Oh, <laughs> well, they like similar uh, habitat in Italy and California. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That color change of the foliage, I always find amazing because in the fall, especially with a little bit of frost, there are varieties of the heavenly bamboo. Those leaves turn to red and then they revert back to green in a few months. Yes, and another group of plants that does that is uh, the uh, Asian species of box, where when the weather gets cold, the leaves turn kind of golden colored. And then when the weather warms back up, those same leaves will turn green again. Where those chloroplasts go to, go to hide, I don't yeah, know. I don't know either, but it is a heavenly plant. It's the heavenly bamboo, Nandina domestica, probably putting on a show near you. Check it out. Warren Roberts is the superintendent emeritus of the University of California Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. You ought to pay that place a visit. It's free, too. Their website, arboretum.ucdavis.com. .edu. Check it out and then make a trip there. Warren, thanks again for the plant of the week, the heavenly bamboo. You're welcome. Don't 
don't forget, if you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's episode of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, please subscribe to the free Garden Basics newsletter. It's on Substack. Details are in today's show notes. The Garden Basics podcast will be on its winter schedule from November through January, which means there will only be one episode per week during this three-month period, and it'll come out on Fridays. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by SmartPots, and we thank them for their support. Garden Basics is available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.